A lot of the information in this podcast is covered in greater depth in my book, Compact of the Republic, The League of States and the Constitution. You can pick that up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. In that work, I argued that the American struggle with Britain was a constitutional crisis and a war for independence rather than a traditional revolution. Much of the content from this series is expounded upon in greater detail in Chapter 2. Again, you can pick that book up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. Are you ready to master historical topics without ingesting hours of readings or boring professors? Dave Benner, author of Compact of the Republic and contributor to the Tenth Amendment Center and Mises Institute, is your host. Sit back and behold the obliteration of conventional historical narratives, preferring dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery since 1776. It's Brush Fires of the Mind. The Struggle for American Independence. Episode 18, The Siege of Boston. Hello everyone and welcome back to the next lesson. Before we launch into discussions of independence, I'd first like to cover two separate events that transpired between 1775 and 1776 of a military nature that were both linked through a common circumstance and we'll describe what I'm talking about in a bit. Remember Henry Knox? the young lad that was uh, part of the initial scuffle that ended up in what is known now as the Boston Massacre or the incident at King Street, he'll make another appearance today and you'll see why momentarily. So by 1775, there was open military conflict between the colonies and Britain. The event I'd like to talk about first is in relation to Fort Ticonderoga. And it is related to Vermont in the way that the forces that captured Fort Ticonderoga were from Vermont. Vermont was something of an interesting case at the time. The uh, independent polity that was known as Vermont was essentially created through the New Hampshire grants. This was a set of grants by the government of New Hampshire to allow for land settlements west of the Connecticut River. These two grants, one in 1749 and the other in 1764, were bestowed by the governor of New Hampshire. However, there was conflict between New York and New Hampshire because New York also maintained its own separate and distinct claim to what is now known as Vermont. So basically the entire uh, settlements there were considered illegitimate as far as New York was concerned, and they shouldn't have any independent political power outside of what New York claimed for its own and its own colony. And really, this set of circumstances created a decade-spanning dispute that really lasted until all the way until 1791, when Vermont becomes a uh, United States state. For that, several decades, both New York. Uh, maintained its own claim, and Vermont had its own independent claim. So, what does this have to do with anything that we're talking about? Well, the Green Mountain Boys were the militia force of Vermont at the time, and they were really established by, um, I should say, the late 1760s to guard the territory, and really to maintain Vermont's land settlements there. They really were some of the most professional forces in North America, military-wise, because they were often mustered, they often drilled, and they had to basically operate um, 
during that span, whereas most of the militia of the other colonies did not. So really this force of militia got a lot of training and practice in times where other forces throughout the North American continent weren't drilling and training as profusely and as commonly as Green Mountain Boys. The Green Mountain Boys were led by Ethan Allen and members of his extended family. And interestingly enough, Ethan Allen was considered something of an outlaw by New York because remember, New York had its own independent claim to the territory, so they thought that Allen and the Green Mountain Boys were just this meddlesome force that shouldn't exist, and we have to do something about this. And really, that's what kind of led to the kind of conflict between New York and New Hampshire at the time, in the midst of this whole struggle between the colonies and Great Britain. Well, Allen was instrumental in resisting New York's attempt to control the territory, and New York didn't make much military progress in doing so, and as such, Vermont essentially became its own independent colony at this time. Now, Fort Ticonderoga was a fort that was located in Essex County, New York. It is located at the southern tip of Lake Champlain, and it had some importance in the French and Indian War. This was because it was considered an important outpost to stop invasions from the north, and it was considered impregnable in, in being able to do so. It did change hands several times, with the French occupying it sometimes, and then the British occupying it for the remainder of the war after 1759, when the British captured it. And after 1759, the British continued to garrison troops at the fort after the war, throughout all of this time, all the way up to 1775. So there was a small detachment there that lived and drilled in and around the fort. At that point, though, the fort was in a state of total disrepair in 1775. It was more of a rundown village than it really was a outfitted outpost. And in some ways, it held little strategic value. Now, you could argue that, indeed, this would have stopped a northern invasion from Canada if the, Britain, if the British chose to invade from that location. But in many other ways, it didn't really have much of a strategic importance. Ethan Allen and the now infamously known Benedict Arnold actually agreed to lead a joint expedition to capture the fort. This happened after several series of debates and discussions between Allen and Benedict Arnold, who at that time was commanding a Massachusetts militia force. Benedict Arnold was actually from Connecticut, but he had convinced the Massachusetts Committee of Safety to allow him um, a small force to take this fort. He thought it was integral to the entire thing. He said, Ticonderoga has to be captured. So Massachusetts uh, Committee of Public Safety allowed him to do so. Allen thought this was his territory. And even though this is in you know, the very eastern part of New York, he thought this was my job to do. And the Green Mountain Boys were the best outfitted force to do it. So both of them disagreed on really who should be able to take the most credit in trying to undertake this mission, but both of them did agree that, that this had to be done, that this fort had to be taken, and they agreed to lead a joint expedition to capture it. Now, capture it they did. On May 10th, 1775, the garrison was completely surprised in their beds and the Green Mountain Boys of Massachusetts Militia volunteers took the fort by surprise. 
there was really no fighting to speak of at this time, and the garrison there was essentially taken prisoner. However, the occupation led to some conflict between Alan and Arnold because writings of both of them show that, you know, both of them wanted to kind of not only take credit for this successful capture, but it also kind of exert influence in the forces there. There were even some times in which the Green Mountain Boys supposedly took arms and threatened Arnold to not try to kind of get in their way and, you know, assert too much command over them where they thought he had none. They looked to Alan as their commander, not Arnold. So although the fort was of little strategic importance, there was one extremely important facet to it. There was an immense cache of artillery at Fort Ticonderoga. There were 40, or I'm sorry, there are 59 artillery pieces there from four pound guns to larger 24 pounder Big Bertha guns. Now, they were much heavier than four and 24 pounds. There are several thousand pounds but this is just what they are known for. And they had basically been not used since the French and Indian War. Also among the large cache of artillery at Ticonderoga was mortars, howitzers, and the total amount of artillery was about 60 tons in weight. So with little strategic value to the fort's position and the occupation of the fort, there was still an immense amount of artillery, of which the militia forces in the colonies had very little. And so this discovery was definitely provoked the interest of George Washington, as we'll come to find out. Now, it's time to introduce, before we go into that, Henry Knox. We talked about him before. He was a very young lad involved in the incident of King in King Street in 1770. Remember, this is the event that eventually basically becomes known as the Boston Massacre to the Patriot Whigs. Henry Knox was a very intriguing young man, very smart, very intelligent. He founded his own bookstore in Boston by the age of 21. The key thing to remember about Knox for now is that he was absolutely entranced by military history and military strategy and tactics. And he used the books that he had accrued to become something of a self-taught military prodigy, even at a young age. However, his interest in military and military history didn't stop with just reading. He actually was part of a command structure of a local militia where he lived in Massachusetts. He helped command that force by 1772. In 1775, he was just 25 years old, and he quickly volunteered to serve as an officer in the struggle against the British. So it was Knox that was sent by George Washington, who, remember at this time, is in and around Boston and kind of partaking in a siege there, um, to find a way to bring artillery from Ticonderoga to Boston. Remember, this artillery piqued Washington's interest. He said, hey, this could be you know, utilized to help our cause, and it would just be incredible if we could get this here somehow. So he sent Knox up to Ticonderoga in attempts to do so. Well, there was just one problem with this. Not only was it going to be in the absolute dead of winter, there were no real roads that connected Fort Ticonderoga to Boston and eastern Massachusetts. 
But that did not stop Henry Knox. He used his own ingenuity to construct 42 oxen drawn sleds by December. He was going to carry all of the, these sleds through almost innavigable uh, terrain. He would go over frozen lakes at some points, frozen rivers, hills, valleys, and part of the Appalachian Mountains. He told Washington in December that he hoped to, quote, be able to present your excellency with a noble train of artillery. And that is what this event became known as, the noble train of artillery. Sometimes it's known as Knox's expedition as well. The key thing here is that Knox had an absolute persistence to get this artillery down to Washington, realizing its military importance and the strategic possibilities that this would give the militia forces that were trying to contain the British within Boston and eventually push them out. He received some assistance from General Philip Schuyler in Albany when he got to Albany, and Schuyler helped him um, with resources and allowed him to get the rest of the way to Cambridge. He eventually did get to Cambridge and by January 25th, and this was by all accounts considered a unprecedented, amazing military feat that really had never been done before. Not only was it in the dead of winter, there was massive snowfall at some times. The cold was excruciating, and Knox's sheer determination is what made the plan succeed. So this event that lasted just about 10 weeks had initially been planned to take much less, but remember the cold and the terrain made it difficult. Knox got many accolades for this feat and Washington looked at him as a you know, very pivotal resource and subordinate for the rest of the war. And that showed because Knox quickly rose in rank following this incident. So when Knox's guns arrive in Boston, Washington immediately takes use of them. He says, we need to put this into motion. We need to use them in the siege. So he immediately placed the artillery on high ground near Cambridge under the command of Henry Knox. Knox was then given a command position around Boston where the Patriots were occupying some of the high ground. Fortifications were built there to support the artillery. However, by March, a decision was made by Washington to occupy and fortify Dorchester Heights with the artillery. Now, this was done because Washington feared that there would soon be a invasion and occupation of high territory in and around Boston. And indeed, he was right. General William Howe did plan some sort of uh, push forward into the Patriot-occupied territory in March. And on March 5, defenses were with extreme haste constructed out of heavy tinders to support this fortification on Dorchester Heights. The Patriots executed a cannon barrage against British positions at this time in early March. And there's a famous quote that may or may not have been sent, actually said where William Howe is claimed to have said, hey, these people have done more in one night than my army has done in months to fortify the heights. And it's hard to know really if he actually said that, but it really did kind of portray 
kind of the events nonetheless because this was done in extreme quickness. Well, because of this and because Hal considered his position in Boston untenable, he delivered Washington a peace offer on March 8th. However, Washington refused to read it because it didn't acknowledge his official position as the head of an army, um, and Washington refused to receive the peace offer. On March 10th, Howe decided that enough is enough. We have to evacuate Boston. But before he did it, he did entertain the possibility of an actual strike. At that time, he ordered all the inhabitants of Boston to give up all their linens and woolen goods to be used as clothing. Because this was a very cold winter, the forces there were ill-supplied, he thought that this would be able to prolong their ability to stay within the vicinity of Boston proper. Well, <laughs> the inhabitants were compensated for their clothing by worthless paper certificates that were absolutely worthless. They were compensated by this fiat money that didn't, wasn't worth anything. Now, Hal's reluctance to attack was spurred by wind conditions and storms that really threatened his forces in Boston. Even though Washington had kind of carved out fortifications at Dorchester Heights, he did think that an assault was needed, otherwise we're going to lose Boston for good. But, again, the storm conditions threatened that, and he eventually decided we cannot keep this up. We have to evacuate Boston. And how and the British did in fact decide to evacuate Boston and go to Halifax on March 17. So, the British are essentially pushed out of Boston completely. And this was taken advantage of by the Patriots in something of a propaganda campaign. George Washington and some soldiers marched into Boston triumphantly, greeted with cheers and adulation and, you know, some pomp and circumstance. This was considered a significant feat. However, everyone knew that the British would not refuse to fight just because they had been pushed out of Boston. What will become known and kind of realized in the next years is that the British naval supremacy was able to be instrumental enough to take large amounts of British land forces, take them off the coast and redeploy them somewhere else in and around the eastern seaboard for really the next five years or so. That is what the Patriots will come to realize. And it was an extremely frustrating thing. However, Boston was never again occupied by the British for all intents and purposes for the remainder of the war. This was considered significant and Boston as kind of one of the hotbeds of radicalism in the entire struggle stood triumphant for the first time against the British. Now I think it's kind of important to reflect on just how many military clashes there were between the colonial patriots and the British by this point. First of all, the Battle of Lexington and Concord where the patriots emerged triumphant at Concord and pushed the British soldiers back into Boston. Number two, in Virginia, several militia companies had essentially confronted and threatened the royal governor there, Lord Dunmore, 
convincing him to leave the colony temporarily. Number three, today we discuss the capture of Fort Ticonderoga and the usage of the artillery pieces to disrupt the British forces in the siege of Boston and force them out of the city entirely. All of these things took place before independence was even declared. And really this kind of spurred something of a debate between people that wanted independence on one hand and just wanted a concerted stand of resistance and self-defense on the other hand. Because the end game to some was not at this point to carve out independent polities for the colonies. It was simply to resist the tyrannical policies of the British. Some of the readings that I would like to suggest today are David McCullough's 1776. I think that the circumstances discussed in this lesson are covered very well in that book. Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty and my own Compact of the Republic, the League of States and the Constitution. In chapter two, I discuss some of these circumstances as well. And that book can be purchased via Amazon in the show notes. I have a link there. I really appreciate it if you look into it. So finally, and this time I'm not kidding, in the next lesson, we will discuss the causes that impelled the colonies to the separation from Great Britain. And in doing so, we will find that that decision was not nearly as unanimous as you might have thought it was. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Brush Fires of the Mind. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, drop by my website, www.davebenner.com, click podcast, and you can subscribe right there.